I don't know, Dave. I'm still really nervous about this clock. It hasn't stopped counting down since last week. It's pretty consistent. Yeah, 20,160, 20,159. Like, it's just, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> what is it? What does it do? What are clocks for? Well, what it's is- usually to tell time. This is, of course, like a timer. But uh, knowing the machine and, and, and what it is threatened to do to me, I don't want this to be the part where it like explodes. So like machine, what is your deal? Oh, we can talk to the machine now. I'm full of surprises. Well, that doesn't sound great, but I don't know. She's, she's, she, I'm, I'm calling her she with her Ooh. new voice. I just, I don't know. I just, I'm nervous about this. When's the last time you exploded, Dave? In what sense? Sorry. In his own garage, Kyle has built a machine cobbled together with parts found in his friend's church basement and a dumpster behind the local Dairy Queen. This monstrosity is now alive and evil. Kyle has convinced his friend Dave to help stop the apocalypse by reviewing films the machine picks. The ultimate purpose is still unknown and Kyle could have probably done this himself, but he's not being dragged to hell alone. This This is is Kyle and Dave versus versus the machine. Welcome to Kyle and Dave versus the Machine. My name is Kyle. I'm Dave. And I'm the Machine. And this is the podcast where a sentient machine, yes, is forcing us to watch all the movies from 1999. Or most of the movies from 1999, it appears. And now has a stupid ticking clock where I have no idea what is going to happen. Dave, when did you decide to stop eating meat? I stopped eating meat when I uh, got sick sick in (laughs) 2000. Life. Life itself. No, at 2008? Mm. I want to say 2008. Tell me about 2008, Dave. What was going on in Dave's life in 2008? 2008, around that time, I peaked at 205 pounds. Shut your mouth. Were you a fatty? Uh, Well, I held it well. Okay. What does that mean? I say that. It was in this bowl that I carried around with me. Yeah, it called my stomach. No, I I thought I carried well at 205 because I would have these big swings. uh, Because what are you now, if you don't mind? Well, now I'm sick, so so I'm probably 155 yeah, pounds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, generally, in Calgary, I've held out at around 170, uh, but at that time, it, at the peak of that hibernation zone <laughs> leading into this moment, I was uh, 205 in the winter months, because normally what would happen is that I would play sports in the summer and try to mm-hmm. be normal, which is a weird word to see, use there, and then in the winter, I would just gorge on flesh. <laughs> you were like the reverse grizzly bear. You would gorge yourself so that you could survive that that winter fallow period. Well, here's an interesting sort of thing. So when I first bottomed out in my life, uh, which is the same year I met Helen, obligatory shout out to my beautiful wife, Helen, Sparkjoy, Helen.com. No, uh, <laughs> I didn't realize you were her hype man as well. Uh, I finished a nice drug binge part of my life and came home at 135. Jeez. Uh, so I was borderline what I would consider, and we looked this, we looked up BMI recently. So apparently I would still have been in the normal range, which is fucking mm. insane. But at the time it was like, you know, you could see the inside of my cheekbones. It was, it was pretty gross. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so what <laughs> happened out of that, the only but you reason, were super hot at the same time. <laughs> I know it's, uh, it's how I, that's how I got my wife. Yeah. You yeah, know, yeah. she was into, she was into emaciated, uh, bodies. No, um, uh, I got this appreciation for food because yeah. I had been starving myself, uh, you know, being an idiot. And so I came home and I started eating all these foods. And so the whole time that Helen and I were together and near the beginning, particularly after we moved in together and had a house, I thought we should eat 
more vegetables, but it's easier to eat, especially when you're younger, to cook, quote, air quotes, meat, because yeah. they tend to come pre, pre-packed, prepared, and kind of easy to fake, right? So you like, you could brush something or put honey or something, and you roast it, and you fucking eat it, and it's great. But vegetables are more nuanced because they're easy to fuck up, and they tend to be bland if you don't know what you're doing. And so we had a challenge, you know, for the first couple of years we were living together in the sense that we both wanted to be healthier, and it just never happened. So the moment leading up to my stopping eating meat, is that gram- grammar? I mean, it's something. We found this uh, Southern Carolina rib place that was in Oshawa, which was about a 45-minute drive from Scarborough. And every weekend we would go there. It was sixteen ninety nine for a, like a fucking half rack of ribs. Wow. And they were like legit. And to the point where by the week, by the end of that period, we were also driving home with sealed bags of pulled pork <laughs> It was just, it was just pork. We were just porking. And at the time I was having all these health problems. I now know likely epilepsy and brain related, but at the time I thought it was heart, stroke. I thought it was everything. I am a bit neurotic that way. And we just happened to this moment where we did the rack, came home that weekend. And it was one of those things where there's nothing in the fridge. And I looked at Helen, I was like, let's do five days where we don't buy a piece of meat Mm -hmm. and just see if we survive. And we immediately in five days, like I was like waking up invigorated mm-hmm. you know and we were eating basic salads and like we didn't know what we were doing yet and that just started this thing where we're like there's something wrong with eating all of this food because we we're feeling really disgusting and now we feel light and that started a journey of uh, vegetarian and veganism for so it was mostly just health related it was not necessarily no ethics. morally or ethically. no i didn't give a shit about animals i, <laughs> I still you know, don't i'll kick a pig if i see it well here's the thing i always used to say that i think it should be like the boy scouts if you're a meat eater and i know all of you are that listen to this you should have to earn a badge by having to murder the animal you're eating so at, at least once in your life if you eat pork you should have to go uh, meet a pig and slit its throat because uh, I had a friend actually who went to Cuba and that's one of the things they do is they go and they prep a pig for uh, a roast and he actually has this terrible story of uh, fucking up the kill. And mm-hmm. he's in a pen and he's apparently mm-hmm. like jabbing the thing and it's not working and a guy had to come and, and finish it off and he loves pork. But that's a man who should eat meat. Why am I turned on? But other people that have the cellophane packaging but then there's a head of an animal and they get squeamish, you should stop eating that animal, in my opinion. Yeah, but I don't care. I, I eat heads of everything, yeah. Well, this week we're going to be watching the movie Ravenous. And humans included. I'm sending you to California, Fort Spencer. We have four missing soldiers, Captain, and no bodies. We need a supportable explanation. Uh-huh. Captain John Boyd is about to discover... No one just ends up at Fort Spencer. We come for a reason. Yours being? Well, something he never imagined. We have a great sense of camaraderie here at Fort Spencer. (laughs) This Indian scout told me a curious story. Winged eagle. It's an old Indian myth from the north. Man eats the flesh of another. (gasps) He absorbs the other man's strength. Okay, so we have just finished watching the movie. Ravenous, the plot description from IMDb, is in a remote military outpost in the 19th century, Captain John Boyd and his regiment embark on a rescue mission, which takes a dark turn when they are ambushed by a sadistic cannibal. 
So that's the plot description. Uh, this did come out in 1999. Before we jump into asking the machine some of the background information, what is your history with this film? Um, it was delicious the first time. I, no, sorry. It was finger licking good. <laughs> I think I didn't see it in the theaters. I'm pretty sure. I don't know. I couldn't give you a date, but I will say that I'd heard about it probably in that film. You know, I bet it was when I was living on my own in Toronto near a, a small video store that had a lot of um, international and interesting films instead of sort of a blockbuster. And then I'd heard about this movie about cannibals and I was peak, you know, Robert Carl, I like all, all these mm -hmm. really interesting character actors, Guy Pierce. And so I was like, I need to watch uh, humans eat each other. <laughs> of course. Uh, I, I'll be totally upfront. I did not even hear about this movie until last week when the machine told us to go and watch uh, it. Like that explains why you were so queasy. <laughs> watching it. Yeah. I mean, I didn't know what this movie was. I didn't know what it was about. Like I really did go into this pretty blind. Other than like going to IMDb and being like, okay, Guy Pierce is in it. So that's, that's something I suppose. So I had no baggage with this because A, had never heard of it. I don't think I ever remember anyone talking about it. And even while watching, I was like, I don't recall this even being something that people have discussed around me. Like this is, this seemed like it was out of the blue kind of semi adaptation of the Donner party. Like that's basically what it felt like to me. I, I, so yeah, I have no recollection of why I knew about it or why I watched it. All I know is I watched it by myself because mm. this is not a film that Helen would no. approve of. Yes, no. Um, it was definitely after we were uh, dating. So it was likely, you know, 2003, probably when I was living on my own. And uh, I really liked it uh, at the time. I didn't rewatch it. I never owned it. And so <laughs> it, This is not one that was like, I'm definitely going to see this four more times. It, it wasn't my pre-dinner ritual. It no, wasn't how I sure. warmed up. I had it as roast. an aperitif. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's do this, Dave. Let's go and thank some sponsors. And then when we return, we'll get to talking about Ravenous. Hi there. I guess for once, David actually has an excuse for not being here. We are sequestered. Neither of us are leaving our houses. I actually let him off the chain so he could go and see his family. So it's up to me then to tell you about our sponsors here this week. As always, Kyle and Dave versus the Machine is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. The Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta-made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta-based businesses and organizations. Now, there's a bit of serendipity here this week because the machine has been making eyes at a local ATM. There's something going on because I can see the way that they look at each other. Our first sponsor this week is ATB. Specifically, I want to talk to you about ATB Booster. ATB understands that sometimes we all need a boost. That's why they started ATB Booster, a crowdfunding platform for small businesses. So if you have an idea and want to test it with a crowd, Booster can help you raise funds to grow and expand into the community. Whether you're a cafe in need of a new espresso machine or a boutique wanting to open a new location, check out atbbooster.ca to find out more. We're also sponsored by the Alberta Podcast Network this week, so I'm going to hunker back down while you listen to one of our other great shows. This episode is brought to you by the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. The Girl Tries Life podcast is a fellow Alberta Podcast Network member and is all about showing that women are capable of anything when they have the right tools, strategies, and mindset in place. I'm your host, Victoria Smith, a stress reduction coach who is all about helping you reduce your stress so that you can actually enjoy your daily life. Imagine that. 
In the Girl Tries Life podcast, we alternate between interviews with incredibly inspiring ladies who break down how they got to where they are and coaching episodes that leave you with tangible resources and skills for your own life. Life isn't stressless, but we can help you stress less. So I hope that you'll check out the Girl Tries Life podcast. You can find it at girltrieslife.com forward slash podcast. And remember, the most important thing in life is that you try. All right. Well, thank you to those sponsors. So let's go through some of the history here. Let me just push this button. Bring up this receipt. Great. So Ravenous was released March 19th, 1999 in North America. The other major releases were Forces of Nature, starring Ben Affleck, Sandra Bullock, and Maura Tierney, written by Mark Lawrence, directed by Bronwyn Hughes. Total blank. Yeah. Yeah. Don't have anything. And with that star power, you'd think I'd have some recollection, but no idea. Interesting. Also, True Crime, starring Clint Eastwood, Isaiah Washington, and Lisa Gay Hamilton, written by Larry Gross, directed by Clint Eastwood. I have actually seen that movie. (laughs) My dad was a big Clint Eastwood fan, so we saw pretty much everything he made in the 90s. He brought it home for us to watch. Clint Eastwood's great, until now. I still actually enjoy some of his movies. Have you seen The Mule? The Mule, no. Oh, no. you're missing out on a three-way that happens with 80-year-old Clint Eastwood, so. And himself, and himself. (laughs) Currently, Ravenous is rated 7.0 on IMDb. Mm. It's rated 46 on Metacritic. That's low. 47% on Rotten Tomatoes via the critics, but users rate it 78% mm. on Rotten Tomatoes. It is currently available on DVD or Blu-ray. You can buy or rent it on iTunes. You can also rent it via YouTube or Google Play Movies. Currently, no streaming options in Canada. It sounds like, by user reviews, it's very popular with cannibals cannibals with yeah. comment so this is the, that's the problem right like your your user base is constantly being dwindled you can't keep <laughs> remarketing it. they're not going to buy it again no it's true yeah, yeah. its budget was 12 million dollars in 1999 it, that adjusted for inflation is 17.9 it opened to 1 million dollars and would eventually go on to make 2 million dollars so inflating that to today's would be 3.6 so it was a box office bomb how did it come up on the computer's algorithm then and not true crime? I'm sure true crime. Listen, if I understood, hey, what is your algorithm, Mr. Machine, Mrs. Machine? What? Oh, it's blushing. It's blushing. You can't ask a machine about their algorithms. The movie stars Guy Pierce as Captain John Boyd, Robert Carlyle as Colonel Ives slash F.W. Colquhoun, spoiler alert, Jeffrey Jones as Colonel Hart. So let's talk about Jeffrey Jones. Jeffrey Jones was born on September 28th, 1946. His first role was in the film The Revolutionary from 1970, directed by Paul Williams, which I checked, not the Paul Williams that I know who wrote Rainbow Connection, because I was super confused for a second. Like, wait, what? Uh, And that's important, by the way, that he did not write The Rainbow Connection. From the late 1970s and onward, he has found steady work popping up in a bunch of classics. Easy Money, Amadeus, Beetlejuice, and Ferris Bueller's Day Off is probably his most iconic role as the principal. He was also in the very horrible Howard the Duck. It's amazing how that's getting so much reference in the Marvel universe. Should mm-hmm. we go Marvel one of these days, Kyle? At Are you some ready point, to throw the gloves off? I'm, maybe the machine will one day force mm-hmm. us to watch every Marvel movie ever made, but mm-hmm. who knows at this point what will happen in the future. We don't talk about this behind the scenes. Howard the Duck. Uh, Howard the Duck is one of the worst movies I've ever seen in my entire <laughs> life. It is awful. <laughs> so, how's this for Synergy? He was in the 1989 film Valmont, directed by Milos Forman. 
Does that Valmont name strike a, a bell for you? Well, it should, because that was the last name of the characters in Cruel Intentions, because it was based on the same source material as Cruel Intentions. You know what the best part of having a brain injury is? I get to strike things from my memory. <laughs> Did we watch Cruel Intentions? Because I don't want to admit that that happened. Yeah, that was last week. Oh, fuck, that's on tape. Yeah, it is on tape. So, uh, however, Valmont starred Colin Firth, so instantly that has to be a better movie, you would think. I wouldn't say that the 90s had a lot of great work for him, but he was in Ed Wood and the John Leguizamo film, The Pest. Oh, The Pest. So Classic. He was in four films in 1999. Mm. Uh, but after Ravenous, he was in the movie called Fly Paper, which also starred Lucy Liu and John C. McGinley, Sleepy Hollow, and Stuart Little. Uh, who knows? Maybe we'll see some of those later on. He found great success by being on the TV series Deadwood as A.W. Merrick. He has not been in a feature film since 2014, and perhaps this is something to do with a 2002 case where he was accused of hiring a 14-year-old boy to pose for explicit photos. He was eventually charged with one felony count of employing a minor for purposes of taking sexually explicit photos and a misdemeanor count of possessing child pornography. After he pled no contest to the felony charge, he was also placed on the sex offender registry. So, given five years probation and ordered to undergo counseling. Maybe. I don't know. Does that have anything to do with the fact he hasn't been in anything for five years? I'm just, my mouth, I don't know if you can hear it, mm -hmm. uh, but it's agape. Here's the crazy part of all that. He was still brought back for the Deadwood film that was made last year. So Continuity. Robert Carlyle. He was born on April 14th, 1961. His first movie role was Silent Scream in 1990. He appeared in a bunch of TV shows as well as films in England. He struck a friendship up with director Antonia Bird, appearing in a few of her films. Most likely, the greatest success and notoriety came when he appeared in Danny Boyle's Train Spotting in 1996, portraying the asshole Begbie. Begbie. Two years before this film came out, he would appear in The Full Monty, which was another huge success, nominated for four Academy Awards, but only winning Best Score. After Ravenous, he has had steady work. He was the villain in the Bond film that came out in 1999, The World Is Not Enough. But also, he'd be in Angela's Ashes, The Beach, Aragon, 28 Weeks Later, and the sequel to Train Spotting, called T2, which is what a bad name. Anyways, Did you watch it? No. I yeah, not. me neither. The next time you'll be able to see him is the TV series Cobra, a look at the British government in the midst of a terrible <sighs> crisis. As widespread power outages cause chaos and threaten lives across the country, the Cobra Committee, comprised of the UK's leading experts and politicians, gathers to find a way to turn the lights back on. On the backdrop of violent unrest in the streets, difficult decisions will need to be made against the clock if the country is to survive. Oh my God. I did that off the dome. I wasn't even reading that. I was just, I'm sorry <laughs> to try to interrupt you, but I was disappointed it wasn't a G.I. Joe movie. I know, huh? That, 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 I'd be more interested in the theme, probably. That fucking synopsis, though. <laughs> I think we have to see that. Yeah. That's our, that's our first movie date. Oh my God. So he seems to have had a quiet personal life. He's Scottish. He's been married to makeup artist Anastasia Shirley since 1997, and they have three kids together. Better than, uh, <laughs> better <no>. than, <laughs> better than Jeffrey Jones. Let's put it that way. Uh, Guy Pierce. Guy Pierce was born on October 5th, 1967. He began his career on the Australian soap opera Neighbors. But his first film role was Heaven Tonight in 1990. His first high-profile role would have been in L.A. Confidential, two really? years previous to Ravenous coming out, same year as The Full Monty. It had been nominated for nine awards, winning two for supporting actress Kim Basinger and 
Did you say that right? Basinger? 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 I don't know. And Best Adapted Screenplay for Curtis Hansen and Brian Helgeland, the guy who wrote and directed Payback. So you can go and listen to that episode if you want more information on that. Uh, anyway, this year was the year of Titanic, so it crushed pretty much every other category. The next year, Guy Pierce would be in Christopher Nolan's breakout film, Memento. Awesome. Then he tried to become an action star in the early 2000s with The Count of Monte Cristo and The Time Machine. That didn't really work out, but... He continued to take bit parts in other films, including The Hurt Locker, which would win Best Picture, The Road, Animal Kingdom, and The King's Speech. In recent years, he's been starring in the TV series Jack Irish as Jack Irish. He has already been in two films that have been released in 2020, Disturbing the Peace and Bloodshot, the newest Vin Diesel film. But next up is Zone 414, possibly 414, who knows, described as Daughter Goes Missing. He hires a private investigator, David Carmichael, to bring her home. David teams up with Jane, a highly advanced and self-aware AI, to track down the missing daughter. Moving through the dangerous iron jungle, they rapidly piece together the mystery, uncovering a crime that leads them to question the origins of Zone 414 and the true purpose behind the City of Robots. This is why we should be on YouTube. You should see Kyle dance <laughs> when he reads some of these synopses. I have to get full body into it. <laughs> The, the machine is loving it. The machine's loving it over here. Why am I turned on? Well, you know, it was probably uh, some sort of mating ritual for it. It had that sort of uh, timber. It's offensive to me, actually. I'm a little offended. I'm sorry. Yeah, that semaphore that I was just doing there. <laughs> I was bringing the plane in. This was written by Ted Griffin. Not much information about Mr. Griffin. Born December 21st, 1970. This was his first produced screenplay, but would go on to write Ocean's Eleven and Matchstick Men. Oh. He has dabbled in directing, producing, and even a small, small acting role. His last credited film was the TV movie Gone Hollywood, which was a look at Hollywood talent agencies in the 1980s. There is no upcoming films currently on his IMDb page. This was directed by Antonia Bird. She was born May 27th, 1951. Her first directing credit was the 1983 made-for-TV movie called Submariners. She would go on to direct 18 episodes of the British soap EastEnders and a lot of other British television shows. Her first theatrical film was the movie Priest in 1994 that featured Robert Carlyle, who we talked about before, and she would follow that up with the film Mad Love in 1995 and then Face in 1997. Off? No, face on. Sorry. This face. This, this singular face. Excuse me. She started in theater before transitioning to films. Her mother was a stage manager. Her father was an actor. And her incredible stage fright led her to take a role behind the camera. I have not seen any of her other films. This is me just doing it in the side. I have heard, though, that she was greatly respected. So I want to check out all of her stuff. But like, just like Ravenous, never really broke out really, really big. She was a director in a very male-dominated field, especially so in 1999. She's quoted as saying this. Generally, the people who make the decisions about which films get greenlit are men, and men tend to be more interested in subjects dealing with men, and it has proved to be quite difficult to get films written with, with female protagonists financed. I mean, I don't know what she's talking about. Look at all of those <laughs> female film protagonists that are still up there. It's a man's world. No, um, now, interesting. Yeah. Stage well, theater. let's talk about that here in a moment. Now, she wasn't the director of this film when it started filming. That was, I'm going to butcher this name, Milchko Manchevesky. That sound right. An Italian man. He would be fired two weeks into filming. Mm. 
He had been known for directing music videos. His first film would eventually be a movie called Dust that would be released the following year, starring Joseph Fiennes. So after he was fired, Robert Carlyle suggested getting Antonia Bird to come and direct it as she had had the capability and he had worked with her like two or three times beforehand. She would continue to make things after this movie. A few TV movies. She got back into TV. Her last credit was a 2013 series called The Village, which doesn't look like it has anything to do with the M. Night Shyamalan movie of the same name, uh, but rather it follows the residents of one English village across the 20th century and their turbulent lives. It was on this project that she was diagnosed with a rare type of cancer called anaplastic thyroid cancer, which she would pass away from in 2013, which is why we don't hear more from her. So that's some background information. I'm going to throw it to you first, David. What are your initial impressions of seeing Ravenous in the year 2020? It's an, uh, an interesting piece. Mm -hmm. Bringing up the little trivia that she was coming up in a theater environment actually makes, makes a little bit more sense the way that this movie moves. Mm. I think. Or what while, do you mean by that, though? Like, when you say it moves, how is it moving? It felt like very structured set pieces. Uh, the pacing is, is felt, I don't know, as we were discussing uh, in this last week before... <laughs> Between uh, us watching the previous film. Yeah, and it was recording. only a week ago. Could you imagine that? My wife and I somehow uh, were able to watch this uh, trending Korean drama. That was uh, 16 episodes. In a whole week? Yeah, 16 episodes wow. at an hour and a half each. Uh, and so I think I'm a little skewed with the way that I think of pacing right now. Well, I think I know what you mean in that when there's that scene very early on in the film where the guy Pierce character is in talking with the Jeffrey Jones character in their, actually, no, it's not the Jeffrey Jones character. It's his, his, uh, the general, the general yeah, guy yep. in that uh, space with the big desk and he's like breaking walnuts and stuff like that. It's very theatrical the way that the camera moves in and out. It feels like they're on a stage the entire time. I'm a big sucker for that sort of thing. I know some people aren't when it's a theatrical production into uh, a movie space, but it, uh, it felt like it was a lived in space that they were using the whole set, not just like, I'm just going to sit you here and then push in, push out, and that sort of thing. Well, it's the fascinating thing. Just quickly thinking about it, how amazing this would actually be as a play. Yeah, you could actually probably stage this as a play. Yeah, it felt like, so I think when we turned, when we pressed stopped on the VCR there, I... Um, That's, I, I forgot we actually went back in time and got a VHS copy of this. Of a movie that was movie. probably released in DVD, but mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> uh, no, uh, VHS still right. And, and just before anyone asks, we were kind and we were round, okay? What does VHS stand for? Um, very, uh, <laughs> very, very, very hot, hot stuff. <laughs> well, how do we end up in the same place? I, when we first ended the movie, I was thinking, oh, there's something awkward about it. It, it, mm -hmm. uh, felt a little bit like I missed the mark. Uh, obviously the content, uh, makes you a little bit, it's hard to kind of uh, stay in the moment. I remember my initial impressions or my memory of my initial impressions. This is like a fast paced, uh, fast paced cut, literally cutthroat mm. and no holds barred, uh, almost sort of rebellious movie where they just don't give a shit about what you think is going to happen. Like everybody's just going to be brutally gored in front of you. I, as a younger man, I was probably in my early twenties. You know, that ending would have felt existential to me. You know, right. now I just, I felt kind of cheap, a bit of a cop out. I didn't even understand his character working through it. But uh, now I, with the second revelation of the theater thing, watching that as a play, I think I could have drawn a lot more. Yeah, there's a lot of things for me. I mean, my initial res 
reaction to this film was I honestly thought it was a pretty strong opener, a pretty strong ending, but the middle that felt a little so bit jumbled awkward. and almost I mean they already had given them what did I say there it's being seventeen million dollars to make this film. I, I have a feeling that with them firing the director, this is probably under the gun of just we just need to make this and, and release it and have a loss leader kind of on our hands. Uh, so maybe they didn't have a lot of authority to make the film that they wanted to. But I feel that if they had been able to spend a little bit more time with this movie, I honestly feel this is one of those examples of a movie needing to be a bit longer. Yes. <laughs> just to fill those last few things out. Uh, not aggressively so. I'm talking like 10, 15 minutes just to have that little bit of breathing room in the middle to make things connect a little bit more. Because there's so many characters, and maybe that's part of the issue is like just pared down to like the essential characters that we need. Because it's like we're introduced to a bunch of people, three of them die right away. Yeah. Then we're in with our, our regular crew, and then we're into the end stretch. And it's like I think because it's just these three that really matter. Let's spend more time with them and their interactions with one another. Like, why was David Arquette in this movie? Exactly, hundred yeah. <laughs> percent. Yeah, like he's David Arquette is in this movie, and. <laughs> I don't know why. Yeah. Because he really doesn't have any consequence whatsoever. I agree with you. When that movie opens, I had that feeling, like, oh man, it's going to be epic, right? Like that, uh, not just the, the the opening boardroom scene and the um, the fascinating moment where he's being hailed as a hero and then he's in the office and they're calling him a coward and a piece of crap. And well, I think that's the interesting part because the guy Pierce character, we're introduced to him, yeah, having this this meal in his honor and him being oh, sort of yeah. this really raw steak, right? So we're like getting thrown into like this flesh and body horror stuff right at the very beginning. But through flashbacks to the rest of the movie, and I, I just don't know enough military history. I don't know if that's like the Spanish-American war that he was a part of. Whatever. Whatever conflict he was in, basically he pretended to be dead, covered himself in corpses, covered in blood. Was and, covered in corpses, yeah. And, and then eventually crawled by out. drinking the blood of his compatriots. Yeah, like, yeah that's the kind of the, the subtext of, of how he survived. Pretty, pretty amazing. Like as a storyline, it's disgusting. It's disgusting, but that's an interesting place to start. It so gets out, kills kinky, a bunch right? of people, yeah. people, and then is able to come back to the front line again. But yeah, as they and then he's shipped that. off to this like outpost so that he can like live out his days and that's the thing obscurity. too. It's such a spoiler alert, but you know you get that thing where he's a coward mm -hmm. in the sense that he freezes up under pressure, decides to play dead, plays dead throughout being tested, being buried. But then when he drinks the blood, you know, vampirically mm -hmm. comes out and he's like the sadistic murderer for a second, uh, apparently. Um, but he's still considered a coward, even though he turned the tide, air quotes, turned the tide of that battle. There's some weird insight there too, with the general or whatever he is, uh, acknowledging that he may understand his character a little bit more than we, mm -hmm. we know. But anyways, he's sent off into space. Right. And then throughout this, now he's at the outpost, meets all these characters. That's when the Robert Carl. Robert Carlyle character comes comes wow. aboard says hey um, that I was out in the incredible like yeah. when he walks in he's like disgusting yeah like, like broken this ragged human. man oh, in black amazing. he's like there's this place out there that uh, we were trying to cross the mountains and yeah. we resorted to cannibalism but I've escaped but there's still some people back there we need to go and help them telling the ghost right. horror story of what happened in the cave I mean I'm already I'm yeah. in I'm in there point. right yeah. and even that place uh, that uncovering of them going yeah. to the cave seeing the bones crawling down and then the one character is like this is a trap everyone's dead down here like that guy up there is ready to kill Counting us all the bodies. and then that's when it flips over and like oh yes like this is he led them into this trap he was the spider <laughs> and they're the flies who have kind of walked right into the web that he has spun 
and how good is everybody like robert carl i mean uh, he's mm. great they, like this may have been the peak of his powers mm. but like his flip when he goes insane and he becomes the monster and he's like the hyperventilating he's going schizophrenic the way that shot you know you get panicked mm. and like well, i mean i don't remember the actor but uh he's, what is he lame is he a little bit slow but yeah he's right, trying right. to warn everybody he's a- unable to communicate and so you get that sense like that gripping sense You're like oh my god this is like a, gonna be a crazy horror movie and yeah, then, not to jump too far ahead like but this is a film that i actually wouldn't mind seeing being redone and not because i think that like special effects are like is going to push this movie uh, forward anyway i just think that with an updated script being able to focus a little bit more on the themes that they're trying to, to push into i just think that with the right director's hands it would be an interesting take now here's the the question here I've written some questions down in preparation for this. A lot of note-taking. Did you even watch the movie? I ah, No, nah, not really. Do you think you could tell that a woman directed this film? I mean, uh, very historically here, famously, you mentioned the fact that you were watching the film The Notebook with your wife, saying, like, I know a man directed this film or no, wrote this. R- wrote it, yeah, wrote it. Directing do you is... Think, do you think you could have told that this was directed by a woman? No. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if I would automatically assume it this is directed direction is a little bit different for me like visual and stuff the one thing i'll say in hindsight maybe it's the theater aspect i feel like if a man directs this it becomes very campy really quickly there's just something about a person i think that might want to prove that they can do things to the extreme and this did enough to be understated almost like even this the violence is visually it's it's all there. I mean, mm-hmm. you're seeing bones and flesh, and like even the opening with the raw steak—that's the most disgusting hunk of meat, mm-hmm. you know—and his uh, and his panic at that. But, but there's something. Yeah, I think that's the thing that I notice about it. And I don't, I honestly don't know if this is just be, if it was because she's a woman. And I don't, I don't want to wrap it up in gender as much. I th- I think it's important to talk about gender when we're when we're talking about these films, especially when we're talking about the writers and directors, because I think that can influence how things are presented. But I think it just might be that she is interested in understatement rather than like, we're gonna go super gory. There's still some gory bits in this film, but it's not like it doesn't lean into that or like linger on that to be uh, to gross her out or to for shock value sort of thing. It's like, no, this is happening. It's disgusting. It's depraved. Great, now we can move on to our next scene. I think the other sort of hint maybe is the um, sort of stoic native female that's on mm. the base. Yeah. I can't remember the character's name because she is sort of this middle line. She doesn't really actually, she has a lot of visual power in the way she interacts with people, but yeah, she hard, what does she have, like 10 lines in the movie? But yeah, maybe. She becomes kind of a central figure by the end. By the end, yeah, yeah. But like to your point in the middle for slowing down, you know, brash way they throw the concept of the wendigo and uh and i don't even know how well, accurate yeah. that interpretation of that myth that is. and that i would like to see maybe more like native american input into like the scripting and stuff like that yes. to make sure that that is actually <laughs> part of the uh, the the accuracy is there for me that was a kind of the most important part of this thing because when you hear cannibal i think i was interpreting this to be a very different movie than what it turned out to be because really this is a vampire movie. Mm. For me, it is. Yes. Because that's basically what happens. Like maybe that is part of the Wendigo myth, or, which is the whole concept here is the reason that Robert Carlyle is eating these people is that he gains the strength of those people into his being. So the guy Pierce character, when he falls down that cliff, breaks his leg, the other guy dies next to him. 
he's forced to be like, the only way I'm going to survive is to eat the flesh of my friend next to me, which helps cure his leg, which makes him grow stronger. And he himself also becomes this uh, mythical uh, beast. And now it's a fight between like the person who's using this for evil versus the guy who's trying to remain good. So that's a cool concept, but that is so rushed and is introduced so quickly. And then we're, you know, off to another part of the movie. Uh, yes, I totally agree with all of that. I think that, for example, if uh, if we're going to be the super cool people who rewrite this, uh, mm -hmm. the one little nuance might have even just been to show Guy Pierce's character's sort of um, rebirth from the bottom of the corpses in a much more distinct way, mm -hmm. right? Uh, we are nuanced. The idea that he's a coward and then he's hiding and then he comes out and he kills three dudes. But it, it's not apparent that he's gained powers or healed. I mean, if he had broken something, crushed a rib being buried under like, four, yeah. like 40 well, people. That's, sorry, that's an interesting thing you're just bringing up. Do you think that he was already starting to do that because he drank the blood of his yes. comrades? Oh, interesting. Uh, so okay. the, uh, the way when I'm leaving this movie, all I could think about is that's why they show that in pieces. That's why you go from this idea that he's just yeah garbage like you know is he's shown mm -hmm, visually mm -hmm. at the bottom of the pile the, he's not drinking it's like leaking into his mouth and they do that cut to him i don't even how did he even emerge how does he overpower a guard this is a person who's been hiding yeah, that's true and then how did he For some reason up, i never picked up on that i thought that he that happened when he fell down the cliff but i think you may be right in that that was already starting his and, journey and they implied too with Okay, he's such a great actor, and I don't know if this is the director advising which director or whatever, but he has that awareness from the beginning that there's just something wrong. Mm -hmm. Even with the the cow steak, he's like, or whatever buffalo meat, whatever they're eating. I mean, he's nauseous. I mean, they're showing him physically sick, and so there's an element at the top level where you're like, well, if he drank human blood, this is gonna look gross. But I think there's something else there that they're trying to imply that he's very aware. Even when the Wendigo thing happens and he sees Robert Carlyle. Or when Robert Kyle appears, I can't remember his name, but as the victim, quote mm -hmm. unquote, Guy Pierce's character doesn't like him. And mm -hmm. he, he's already questioning the story. And he's trying to rescue them on the basis of what he's experienced, but he doesn't, he's not heroic. He's not leading the charge and saying that he understands what this is. He's like watching Robert Kyle the whole time because he's like, this guy's kind of weird. Like he's seeing something already. Mm -hmm. And then that struggle when he's in there, I, I would have liked as well, like how much time passed in the cave? Mm -hmm. or in, in the in the trenches uh you know if we had some nuance that that was actually much shorter than we thought and then he walked out i mean there's that scene where he's laboring through you know uh when he's returning to the base if we know that that's like a week or something or you know if we get a couple of shots of the moon passing I and mean, how long would that body next to him have kept mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. been edible uh so the, there's like little things that they glance over to get to the big finale which be, is a vampire movie which yeah. is uh very like you will drink this blood yeah. it's like i can't i'm human like you will drink it you know join us well i mean it's like yeah going into the vampire fiction of like the sire and the offspring and like the fighting between the two of them just to zoom out a little bit i wonder if you have any idea are there particular themes you think that there are in this movie that it's trying to present to us or is this just simply want to make a cool cannibalism film no i, I think these types, even vampire stories are mm -hmm. about, I mean, it's too Freudian and it's too simplified, but yeah, chasing ego and empowerment and playing God, right? Mm -hmm. uh, there are cannibalistic movies. I mean, you know, what is it? 127, 128 hours? What is it, that movie? 127, like when that's, he, wait, sorry, the one that trapped in the rock? Yeah, where it cuts off his arm. Yeah, so that's not a cannibal hours. movie, 
per se, but that's not a but movie. He did eat his arm at the very end. So. <laughs> but it's like a movie about survival. And so you have a, a theme of what a person is, of the length of a person is willing to go to survive. So that's one sort of idea of cannibalism. It's the last resort. And then there's this sort of um, racial thing where there's a, a tribe of cannibals and they're looked at as subhumans and they just eat people. But this, like you said, is a vampire movie. So a vampire movie in theme meaning that it's about chasing this ability to control and to rule and to uh, set this little, build a community in which um, idiots will walk, cows, cattle will walk through. And then as long as we have a minimum of three vampires, we need a third. We need, I don't even know why Robert Carlyle like murdered everybody on his own, but now he needs, uh, you know, he needs three of them. There's whoever's writing it or developing it, whether intentionally or just by nuance, has this thought that this is about what a person is willing to do to quote unquote win for themselves. And then Guy Pierce is what I'm willing to put up with to maintain a status quo, like to just be moral. Mm-hmm. I know. Yeah, there's a there's an element of this where I feel like it's this conflict between you know the Spider-Man thing, like right? with great power came, comes great responsibility, without them having to explicitly say that. Where the Robert Carlyle is like the classic supervillain. Hey, I'm given this power, and I'm going to crush people with it. Where the Guy Pierce characters, I'm given this, and this is something I'm almost scared that I have this power, but I do not want to use this for evil. I'm trying to somehow use this for good even though i don't know how to use this like strength and power and i'm always scared of myself like becoming overcome with uh with greed and avarice yeah i mean i'll make one dig at you which is i think the marvel lens makes it seem like guy pierce wants to do the right i don't think he wants to do the right thing at all i think he's trying to die my sense is he's portrayed as somebody who's just he's giving up he doesn't want to eat the meat he doesn't want to be around people he has no idea what he's doing anymore he's not somebody who has recognized that if he eats a person but then he saves five children, that there's a balancing thing. He's more just sure. like, I just don't want anything to do with this. And in the end, even the struggle to drink the stew to win, you know, or to come back is a fascinating thing where he, he, he's not into it at all. Even no, the, but I think he also is, there, there's two different kind of storylines going on here at the same time, which is him knowing that he has to stop the Robert Carlyle character. Right. At the same time as I think you're right, it's like, I don't think I was meant to survive that war. Right, right. <laughs> and I have to... Atone almost. Atone for that, yeah. that mistake that happened. Like, I should have died. Yeah. Which is an interesting, another interesting thing to take, because I'm sure that there's lots of soldiers out there that feel that way, whether they do it in the same way as him, or like they just fight and all their you know friends die around them. It's like, I wasn't supposed to survive this. So there's that survivor's guilt that gets wrapped up into that too. From a character development thing, it would be interesting, and maybe I just am not remembering, but to get a little bit more insight into how Robert Kyllal becomes a vampire, mm-hmm. I, I think there's a story he tells about himself, but of course that becomes, you know, it becomes a fable because mm-hmm. he's making up his own backstory. Just so that we could see someone, you know, if it was a survival thing for him or if he was just born a monster, then it changes the tone because then you might get this thing where like, I also was at the bottom of a heap and drank this blood but now that i realize that i can do whatever i want we mm. should do whatever we want and then guy pierce could be like well i drank it but it was gross and i just don't want to ever do it again mm. but they don't get to meet at at a level it just at that point becomes yeah like a horror movie almost when he reappears and this is also something i brought up in the cruel intentions episode sorry did we watch cruel intentions we did watch cruel intentions i know you're trying to block it out of your mind uh but just remember Ryan Phillippe, 
shirtless. It's uh, <laughs> well, bottomless too. and bottomless. No, I don't remember it. Yeah, keep going. Really, <laughs> it is my wallpaper. <laughs> I want to bring in this thing that, as a bisexual man, this is constantly on the top of my mind. So when I even see hints or flourishes of it, it's like I latch onto it and won't let go. Which is, I do feel, and this is actually true for a lot of vampire fiction. There's been a lot of writing about this. There is this inherent, especially when it's man and man, like one vampire making another vampire. There is this element of homoeroticism that's part of this story. And I think it is part of this story. And I honestly think it's meant to be there, especially at the very end where there's like the huge fight, which I don't know if is necessarily choreographed in the best possible way. But, you know, there's this fight and this like confrontation at the end. And how do they both die? In each other's arms, well, <laughs> you know. In a manner like, speaking, eat yeah. me when I'm dead. Eat me. Yeah. I'm like, okay, in like, a bear the, trap, but yeah, yeah, in this like huge bear trap and stuff like that. <laughs> but I mean, there is something intimate there. Yes, I know that. I know that it's like this piece of genre fiction that we're watching here, which is like it's about cannibals and they're literally asking each other to eat themselves at the at the very end of it. But there is this intimacy that is involved within that decision. Ultimately, both just die at the at the very end too. But I mean. There's something there and i think that there would be interesting to like explore that area of that relationship a little bit more i wonder if the perspective or tone in which you interpret what's happening sort of informs how you experience the moment in the film so for example particularly in a um, old school very strict moral old school idea that hetero or die yeah watching two men embrace watching two men develop something beyond dude bro bonds, mm -hmm. you know, implies something a little bit deeper. But I also wonder, is somebody writing something like this where they're uh, not scared to do something that's going to disgust the mass audience, um, clearly have some deep-rooted psychological and emotional and spiritual sort of uh, experiences and questions. It may be necessary for this to be played out either by two men or two women for it to not become, you know, uh, Twilight. Right. You know, I see that. Um, I don't know. I, I understand where you're going with it. I think that it's not laid out that way, whether it's written with that intent. I mean, I, I have absolutely no idea. Certainly like interview the vampire, like other iterations of this thing, it's a little bit stronger, but that also might be a studio play because you have six packs everywhere and people need to be sure. Well, true, but I'm, I'm just saying too, the history of Hollywood and, and, and theater and stuff, there's all this stuff wrapped up into right. it. Even when we look at Disney films, there's the whole idea of coded gay characters being villains. That's, you know, Scar, Ursula, right. uh, a lot of those early, in the Renaissance period of Disney animation, they were using Jafar the same way, but these the stereotypical gay yep. tropes, but they were the villains. Yep. There's also... If we look in Broadway, like Tennessee Williams, for instance, was a gay man. Not all, but many of his women characters were written initially as gay men and then switched to a right. female just so that he could put the play on. Right, right. <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. So there's all these things that are wrapped up into it. I'm just, I have no idea about this writer, Ted Griffin, what his background is, um, if this was intentional or not. I just feel that there's an interesting interplay that could be worked at there. I don't think that necessarily this film is actually interested in that at all, but I feel that there is an element that is wrapped up in this story. I would definitely agree with you historically. Mm -hmm. I would think that uh, definitely in the idea of the world of entertainment, art, and culture, there are much more blurrier and acceptable lines than the mass media want mm -hmm. to acknowledge. Uh, and when the mass, a powerful sort of corporate world uh, controls it, yeah, they play on these stereotypes. For this movie in particular, I. 
Yeah, I don't know. I, I think the other way. I think that this is, for me, a monster movie mm-hmm. at, its, at its base somehow. Spiritually, it's a, a movie about morality. And, um, and I think, because I love the way the actors portrayed the parts, I, I don't see that tension with Guy Pearce and Robert Carlo. I, I see more tropes of, uh, yeah, monster versus human, whatever that is. But uh, eh, agree to disagree? No, just disagree to agree. Do you think this movie is still culturally relevant? I don't know. Yeah. Can- cannibalism. <laughs> well, I guess the, the, big, the bigger question is, why do you think this film is not talked about as much? Like, it's not, it's one of those films I don't think is, like, brought out, like, the 100 best horror films of all time, uh, or, you know, discussed as, like, hey, 90s horror fans, like, we should really be speaking more about this film. So what is it about this film that you think is not pushing it into that category? I wish I remember how I came across it. I think mm. I'd be better informed to answer this question if I could remember how I came across it. I think that it's not really a horror movie. Mm-hmm. It, it has a horror dressing. There's gore on it. It's trying to be intellectual, mm-hmm. but it doesn't go too far into that where it's like a sit-down armchair drama either. Yeah. So it might be that it just got stuck in this middle middling ground where it couldn't decide what it really wanted to dive into. Or maybe it it couldn't dive into something too specific because it would lose its power as small as it tended to be. If this wanted to be a seminal horror movie, you have to strip away so much of the discussion and backstory, in my opinion, and make this about violence, shock, mm-hmm. gore, and uh, extremes of monstrosity. And yet, even Robert Carlyle's worst iteration is actually still pretty human. It's, I think yeah. it's what makes it so appalling is that he actually just, as creepy as he can be, he's not... He's not the uh, Sam Neill in Event Horizon creepy or right. like uh, what were we talking about just at that finished um, Sunshine, yeah, you know, yeah. where you see the visualization of the devil. He doesn't actually go that far. No, uh, yeah. It's, it's just interesting, right? This almost feels like it's an early 90s film though to me versus an, a late 90s film. There's, it's a little bit rough around the edges still. It's yeah. not... Um, Felt very British actually now that we've seen... Actually, well, and she is, a, yeah. she is from Britain and stuff. So I, I agree with that too because I definitely think it was... I, definitely into the 2000s and absolutely now today I find that most horror films almost look like what I call prestige films like they're shot in this, a very beautiful way you could like almost mistake them as like a fantasy film or like a high-end drama film whereas horror films in the 90s especially the early 90s always were like schlocky a little bit yeah. like they had a different film look to them the entire time trying to intentionally be gritty and right yeah, yeah. I think this one falls into that area a little bit too. Yeah, I think that's that's part of it. And then ultimately, kind of like Still Crazy and some of the stuff that we've watched this year, there might be, I mean, I don't know how this is remembered on a global sense. Mm-hmm. It may not be just because of the content, but you get that feel too. I think you're exactly right. There's something visually about it and its pacing that won't appeal to a North mm-hmm. American sensibility as, a, as an average because it's... Uh, even as if you're someone who's accepting it as what it is, it moves kind of awkwardly. So mm-hmm. you're either going to like it conceptually or for the actors and their portrayals. But as a movie, it's kind of, uh, it's a bit of a mess, actually. We're done here. All right. Well, the, the machine has told us to uh, wrap it up here. What do you think you would give this movie as a rating? My nostalgia is telling me like a two and a half, but I might go for a two. I, mm. I love the themes. But, so you you were not overly impressed with this movie overall. No, I felt kind of disappointed in the end. I think uh, there were individual points. I think, yeah, certain scenes play really well. I love all the actors' portrayals of their characters and whatever range they're given. But as a whole, 
when we finish this thing, I, I don't want to watch it again. I have no real interest in it. And I'm not sure I got out of it anything that is interesting to me. Mm. But it's not terrible. Like I enjoyed moments in it. So I can't go cruel intentions. I can't be cruel about my intentions of this uh, film. So I think I would, I would be a little bit disappointed and go with the two. I give it a two. Yeah. This is so interesting because during this conversation, I honestly thought you were going to rate this higher than what I was going to. <laughs> and it's the, it's the exact opposite. I think that there is something more to it. I do want to actually watch this again at some point, uh, like not this week or anything like that, but I could see like during Halloween or something like that, I could bring this back out and give it a rewatch and see what it is. I think there's something there. I don't think that it ultimately uh, becomes a great film, but I think it's a solid film overall. I'm actually giving it a 3.5. So this is actually the biggest difference oh, that we've starting. ever done Kyle, starting. <laughs> for two films. So Our friendship's over. I know that, uh, that means though with a 3.5 and a two that you gave it, the average is going to be a 2.75, but we round down here, which means 2.5. Now that means that it is currently tied with uh, she's all that. So, between sim- this and She's All That, would you rate it above She's All That or below She's All That? Very similar films. I would watch She's All That before I'd watch Ravenous. Um, mm. I wonder too, just a quick thought about being in my 40s and having a kid, that maybe, you know, personally, the content and the sort of uh, uh, methodology is is something. Like if we revisit this conversation when I'm when Emerson's moved out. Sure, sure. And I'm just like a really cynical angry lonely person i might enjoy bullshit and I just be like yeah i become like a surly teenager again and be like yeah so <laughs> no it was all right man um yeah but right now i would definitely i would definitely watch she's all i was not saying that i would definitely watch it but i would watch she's all that uh, a little bit more quickly than ravenous okay i i can agree with that i think overall so that means that ravenous We'll go into our list of films that we've watched here this year into our fifth spot currently. Okay. Granted, we've only been watched, what is it, nine, ten films nine, ten. now at this point? Okay. I don't know how to count. So, Middle um, of the pack. Middling. If I people, think I used that word in my description. is middling. Yeah. If you want to check out the list that we've been compiling, you can do so over on Letterboxd. You can go there, letterboxd.com slash KDVSTM. There'll be a link to that in the show notes as well. You can also follow us on a bunch of social media spots. We're at KDVSTM on Instagram and Twitter uh, as well. Um, before we completely wrap up here, though, let's see some trivia. First piece of trivia. It is 25 minutes into the film before Captain Boyd, who is in virtually every scene, utters his first full sentence. Mm. Now, that is the Guy Pierce character, just so that you <laughs> remember who he is. So I think that's an interesting take, right? Before he actually talks without monosyllabic words he's saying. I feel like it explains why the beginning feels so powerful. Because mm-hmm. you're drawn into that. Because yeah. he, he's a great physical actor. So when, when he finally speaks with, uh, with authority, it's like, oh, this is a big moment that we're getting to. Yep. After hiding out in the woods from the Wendigo, Boyd hikes back to camp. The music that is playing is a church hymn called Jesus is Coming Soon. Oh, I think that's an interesting little subtext mm. to it. Mm. Roger Ebert oh, rated this film three out of four stars. Ooh. So he liked it quite a bit. He said, this is the kind of movie where you savor the texture of the filmmaking, even <laughs> when the story strays into shapeless gore. 
I'm just imagining with words, huh? Yeah, I'm imagining him sitting there and going like steak. Steak. I gotta I, I gotta, gotta make something somehow. with steak, yeah. According to Robert Carlyle's DVD commentary, vegetarian Guy Pierce stoically underwent multiple takes of him eating the life-saving Knox stew, which was in fact a very nice lamb stew prepared by the film's caterers, chomping into large steaks of meat and spitting them out as soon as Antonia Bird called cut. I don't know why they couldn't have just used fake meat back then, like tofu or something it's like that. There's, I don't know. Kyle, in 99, uh, vegetarian I have never food, lived in a world without Beyond Meat. You cannot tell me there wasn't Beyond Meat back then. In 1999, vegetarian food was garbage. It was literally <laughs> it was straight up garbage. garbage. Like soy substitutes was just soy. It's mm. like they had never in, discovered herbs or spices yet. The fact that it's 2000... They had to go ask the colonel before they could discover any of these urban spices. We live in the era of Beyond Meat. It happened in 2019. <laughs> right? 20 years that's after true, this existed. True. Yeah. So that's what they would do now. Uh, lastly, the end fight scene was made up by actors Guy Pearce and Robert Carlyle when the original scripted ending, which was to take place on the roof of the cabins at night while they were burning, was scrapped in favor of them just beating the hell out of each other. During this, the production ran out of fake blood. I think that's part of the reason why it feels so weird. It's like yes. they're not bleeding. <laughs> they, they're just randomly like throwing shots at each other. I think that that original ending would have probably been the cap off to this, this huge thing that they're trying to build towards. Otherwise, it just feels kind of like a weird letdown at the very end. It might have been too vampiric and so Christian to end up sort of like in the burning the bird, flames. The burning cross falling at the very end. It would probably, but honestly, Kyle, that you brought it up too, how the ending just, just didn't work. Mm-hmm. Uh, that makes so much sense. Yeah. It should have been the other way. I can actually picture it. And yeah. it's been amazing. Well, overall, that is our thoughts on Ravenous. Like I said, I already mentioned all the social media ways that you can follow us here online to see what we're doing. I guess the last thing we need to do is let's see what we are watching next week. Oh boy, we get to watch. Oh, I it's been a while since I've seen this movie. We get to see 10 Things I Hate About You. Ooh, I actually like that movie too. Yeah, yeah. When's the last time you saw 10 Things I Hate About You? I have absolutely no idea. I'll have to ask my wife. I think definitely wasn't last week. So, oh God, that would mean that we're pre watching films. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We, we would never do such a thing. Who wants to break that forth? Well, no, I will watch it uh, in the week mm-hmm. coming after this yeah. recording. It's Anyways, um, you, you seem like a plump, what, 160? 150 right there right now yeah about 150 i'd love you to come over for dinner i will make sure that i've done a full basting before i arrive at your place we did once become uh, a master baster why am i turned on